The cornbreads had various hues, from light yellow to a deep golden brown. Shapes, circles, squares, and triangles. And textures, gummy to crumbly. Yet many Utsi's cornbreads stood out from the rest. It follows a classic soul food formula, particularly with the use of yellow cornmeal and sugar. Welcome to My Family Recipe, presented by Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Arthi Menon. I'm also the lead editor of the original essay series on Food52. Thank you for joining us as we explore some much-loved heirloom recipes and the delicious stories behind them. Today, we are absolutely thrilled to welcome a food writer, James Beard Award winner, attorney, and certified barbecue judge. There are not many people who can claim all of those monikers, but Adrian Miller does just that. A few years ago, Adrian wrote an essay for the My Family Recipe column called The No-Fail Cornbread That's Slightly Sweet and Very Divine. He goes into the dishes and, and characters who populated his childhood and his church community in Denver, Colorado. Adrian, welcome. This is such a pleasure. Oh, so good to be with you. Thank you for joining. So in your essay, Adrian, you say, and I quote, some joke that the AME, an acronym for the African Methodist Episcopal Church, actually stands for always meet and eat. <laughs> Can you talk to us a little bit about the history of the AME and its relationship with food? Yeah, so the African Methodist Episcopal Church is one of the oldest black churches in the United States. It was started in the late 1700s by a guy named Richard Allen and some others, and it really was birthed out of racism. So mm -hmm. the white Methodist church that they belonged to in Philadelphia, uh, segregated seating, and wouldn't allow African Americans, whether free or enslaved, to participate in certain things like going in the, to the altar and other rituals um, in an integrated way. So they they agitated and advocated mm -hmm. and tried to get the church to change their ways, but they ultimately didn't. So one day they just protested and left the service and went down the street to a, a, a blacksmith's shop and started their first service. So that's why the symbol for the AME Church is an anvil. Mm. with the cross in it because it the anvil served as the first altar. Um, wow. And so, yeah, they went on to found a church that's now uh, has a presence around the world. And what was the role that your family's church played in your, in your childhood in Denver and, and your, and your memories around food growing up? Yeah. So um, my parents moved from central Denver to the Southern suburbs when I was a little kid, about eight years old. And one thing I'm internally grateful to them for, including several other things, is the fact that they maintained this tie to this black church that they went to. Um, so even though we lived in the suburbs, uh, we would make the trek into the city uh, for choir rehearsals, for events, and also for the church service mm. to be part of that black church. And I love the black faith tradition, the black worship style. And so that that was a great part of my childhood. And it also kept me tethered to black culture in so many ways. And um, anybody who's been part of a church community knows that one aspect of successfully building community is to have social events marked by incredible, incredibly good food. Mm -hmm. And my mom, um, my late mother was a very good cook. And so people in church culture will understand this. Um, 
whenever there was some kind of communal potluck event, people would ask what my mom made. <laughs> and that would determine what they ate. So that that just tells you how much my mom threw down when she cooked. Wow. What are some of your richest memories around around things that she made? Oh, yeah. So um, one thing was this lemon icebox pie. And if you've never had a lemon icebox pie, essentially, yeah, it's like you've had, you have you ever had a key lime pie? Yes. So imagine a key lime pie, except instead of a graham cracker crust, you had Mm -hmm. crushed vanilla wafers glued together with melted butter. Whoa. Yeah. A lemon custard and then lemon meringue. Oh my Um, goodness. And she was also known for her dressing. So for those, for the uninitiated, um, Southerners, African-Americans, people tied to Southern food culture, we call, we don't say stuffing. We call it dressing because Mm -hmm. we cook it in a separate dish and not in the animal. Um, But she had a very good recipe for that. Um, I remember one of my pastors growing up just made a special request for that recipe. Um, But, you know, there's just other stuff, her greens, you know, so many other things that she made were just really rock solid. But those are the two things that I remember people commenting on quite frequently. And tell us about Minnie Atsi, the baker of your favorite cornbread and very much like your mother, uh, her friend, uh, a church mother herself. Can you paint a picture of her for us? Minnie Atsi was a very kind woman and she was from Arkansas uh, along with her husband. They moved out to Denver uh, in the, I want to say the early 60s, maybe been a little bit earlier than that. Uh, but she was just a stalwart of the church. You know, she was somebody who um, was part of different clubs, uh, definitely could count on her to help events happen. And um, she she had several kids. One of her, her only son was one of my best friends growing up. Mm. Uh, so just had a lot of connections, but a very nice woman. And I remember one of the last things she said to me before she died is, uh, you know, I was working on this, my soul food book. Right. And um, authors understand this. Writing a book takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And I remember one Sunday, she said, you need to hurry up and finish that book so I can read it before I die. Oh. And uh, I actually did not <laughs> finish it by that time. But, um, you know, her her family, uh, especially her daughters, were so grateful that I gave her a shout out in my book. And I'm thankful that they let me use that recipe. Yeah, because she, I can imagine, was uh, was a source and resource for you. Um, yeah. But your mother and her friend, Minnie, um, were both featured in your church's Hospitality Club cookbook. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the significance of these community documents in preserving and passing down family recipes? The endeavor of writing a cookbook is is difficult. And um, we know in our looking at the publishing history of our country, mm-hmm. African-Americans were not often afforded the opportunity to uh, publish books that got out to a wide audience. Uh, Mm. And in the early days, some of the earliest cookbooks, you'll see a preface where the African-American author is basically asking for permission or giving reasons why they were allowed to make this book. You know, so just it it talks about the racism that African-American authors have had. But these community cookbooks are uh, a moment in time that celebrate longstanding traditions. And so it's, it's a literary feast. I always think of it as a literary potluck, right? You just mm-hmm. imagine this table with everyone bringing their best show-off dish because you're not yeah. going to put a lame dish, you know, you're not <laughs> going to put a dish that doesn't taste good into a cookbook. You're going to do something that, you know, it's going to really be a shows no off. fail, no fail show-off dish. Right. Yeah. yeah. You want something that shows off your virtuosity as a cook. So it's the very best being compiled in a volume 
uh, and it stands the test of time. And you look at these names, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember her. Uh, she was such a nice woman. Yeah. And then you're like, yeah, I remember that dish, too. That was slamming. <laughs> Do you still have your mom's edition of it? Like, well-thumbed and oil-stained? And... Yeah, I had to I had to staple the cover back <laughs> to the front page because that had fallen off. And I have my little notations in there and everything. Yeah, so I have that edition, and then I also have several new ones just in case. And speaking of mini Atsi, can you describe the no-fail cornbread that you write about in your essay? So one of the reasons why I love this recipe is because I was looking for a fairly um, standard cornbread that's soulful, and I'll explain what that means in a moment, and I thought one that cooks could manage. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason why I say it's soulful is because most African-American cooks put sugar in their cornbread. Yeah. Now, this is a big dividing line in Southern culture. Most white Southerners that I've met are steadfastly against that. And they say, look, if you put sugar in cornbread, it's cake. <laughs> but I got to tell you, most African-American cookbooks that I've read, the recipes for cornbread include some kind of sugar. So, um, you know, it's it's something where if you're making it, 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 it has the appearance of a thick cornbread, ba- or a thick pancake batter. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what it looks like. That's the consistency you want. I think the part that really trips people up is the melted shortening. Mm. So, because uh, I find there are people who will make the recipe and they'll use just regular vegetable oil, yeah, or something, and then they write me and tell me how the recipe failed. And the first question I was like, "Did you use shortening?" <laughs> and like, uh, no. I mean, it's just oil, right? That's con- you know. I was like, "Yeah, but there's a reason why you have to use the shortening." Yeah. So. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a crumbly cornbread, but still holds up well together. You, you can use it in a variety of ways. I usually do a skillet, um, a grease a skillet and cook it that way. So you get a nice wedge. So Adrian, you've devoted a great deal of your life to researching and documenting the history of soul food. Can you talk to us about when and how your love for African-American food grew from an appreciation to a subject study? Yes. So the short answer is uh, unemployment. (laughs) So I was working in the Clinton White House um, on on a racial reconciliation initiative. Mm -hmm. And um, when the Clinton administration came to a close, my plan was to follow the plan I'd had for at least 10 years uh, to that point was going back to Colorado and starting my political career because I wanted to be ultimately the U.S. senator from Colorado. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the job market was really slow. I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you what shows. Um, And in the depth of my depravity, I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to the bookstore and um, I'd always like to cook. So I was just in the cookbook section and I came across John Edgerton's Southern Food at Home on the Road in History. He wrote that book in the late 80s. I'm reading it in 2001. Mm-hmm. And early in that book, he wrote that the tribute to Black achievement in American cookery has yet to be written. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. Um, so I I emailed him cold, uh, I think maybe even the next day, uh, and just asked him, hey, you know, you wrote this 14 years ago. Do you still think this is true? And he said, you know, for the most part, nobody's really taken on the full subject. People have written about parts of it, but nobody's taken on the full subject. And there's always room for another voice. Mm-hmm. So why not yours? So that's really what launched me on the journey. Um, And I reached out to other food writers and uh, African-American food writers just to verify that. Um, And they said, yeah, nobody's really done it. 
And then the other thing uh, those writers told me is they look, this country is racist. So you're just not going to find that much. So it's going to be a real challenge to write this book. So, you know, get what you can, cobble it together and, you know, put out the book. And I was like, okay. So I went into the project, the endeavor you know, of writing a book, thinking I was going to have a hard time finding enough to substantiate the story. But um, a lot of these writers that I spoke to didn't know about this newfangled thing called the internet. And when I got on the internet, uh, you know, in, in not too much time, I had enough to write five books. Wow. So um, I wrote about soul food because I thought, well, this is the most recognizable aspect of African-American cooking, cookery. And let me write about that and see if that leads to other things. Okay, so we're going to take a very quick break. But when we come back, I'm excited to speak to Adrian in much more detail about the evolution of soul food in the United States. Hi. I'm Hannah Forden, Heritage Radio Network's program manager and a producer of this podcast. If you're loving my family recipe, I have a few other recommendations to offer from HRN. Everyone has a food story, and Let's Talk About Food is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about pleasure, scarcity, overabundance, all the ways that food delights and disappoints. From our first mouthful of applesauce in front of our adoring family, to our first bite into a jalapeno pepper, and everything in between. For fans of storytelling, this is a podcast you're going to devour. For fans of chef interviews, Inside Julia's Kitchen will introduce you to the bright lights of today's food world. Enjoy rich conversations with Yotam Adelengi, Rodney Scott, Melissa King, and other leaders in the culinary world. HRN is an independent, member-supported, nonprofit podcast network. Listen to these podcasts wherever you're listening now, or visit heritageradionetwork.org to browse our library of 35 weekly shows and more than 15,000 archived episodes. Start exploring at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to My Family Recipe. Our guest today, Adrian Miller, is known best by his nickname, The Soul Food Scholar. So we couldn't let him go without getting a walk through the history of soul food that he spent so much time exploring. How would you define soul food, Adrian? Soul food is the food of Black migrants who left the American South and settled in other parts of the country. So I think soul food is distinct from Southern food. Mm. And the reason why I um, pin it to migration is because when, when people leave one place and go to another, if they can re recreate home like they did before, you know, they'll do it. Um, mm -hmm. But often you have to find different and substitute different ingredients. You're encountering new people and sometimes you may borrow um, from them. And then, you mm -hmm. know, oftentimes when you're in a new place, you just can't get everything that you got back home. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for example, in soul food, it's the difference between having fresh peach cobbler and peach cobbler made from canned peaches. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's a limited number of greens because of the plentiful greens that grow in the south are not going to grow in a more temperate or arid climate like you would find in other places like in a place like Denver. So we mm -hmm. see a narrowing of the southern food menu when it comes to soul food and then and then some variation. So um, I, I tell people it's it's really that precisely and it's just one of the African heritage cuisines in the United States um, related to Creole cooking and low country cooking. Yeah. 
and other types of cooking, but I think it's different. And because we're airing this episode, you know, in the most wonderful season of all, holiday season, I wanted to touch upon a little bit how inextricable holiday food is from soul food uh, or the food of the, the rural South. Can we, can we talk a little bit about that? Soul food is a mix of celebration food and kind of everyday food. Mm-hmm. And so, um, again, when you think of migrants, especially in the United States, what we often think of the migrants' everyday food is usually the celebration food of the old home, of the old country. Mm-hmm. Because when people leave a place and go to a new place, they're usually poor and they struggle. Yeah. But once they get their footing and start to prosper, they remember the good times food of the old country mm-hmm. or back home. And so they eat that on a more regular basis because it's a sign of status, right? It's a it's yeah. a way to feel good. So a lot of the things we think about when we think about soul food, the things like fried chicken, barbecue, the glorious pies, biscuits, things like that, th- those were things that um, in terms yeah. of ingredients, enslaved people only got access to uh, on weekends when the work schedule slowed, which allowed this kind of cooking, and on se- uh, special occasions. Because a lot of the things yeah. that made up those dishes, things like refined sugar, uh, white flour were prestige ingredients, and African Americans were not conferred the status in society to have regular access to those mm. ingredients. So the day in and day out food of African Americans is is yeah. very close to what we call vegan today, um, because slaveholders were doing everything on the cheap. So five pounds of some starch, cornmeal, rice, sweet potatoes, a couple of pounds of smoked, salted, dried, or pickled meat, usually pork and a jug of molasses. So enslaved people had to figure out how to supplement their diet um, with those meager rations. So when you move to a new place uh, and, and settle in the new place, uh, often within a gen- you know, within a few years, once people prosper, reg- the celebration foods become a regular part of the diet, so much so that people think that that's just the everyday food. Yeah. And corn or maize, of course, is an ingredient of unique importance in the Americas. And it grew from uh, a staple for many Native American communities to becoming eventually a commodity crop for white farmers. And in between, cornmeal-derived cornbread became especially present on African-American tables and plates. Can you go into cornbread significance for Blacks living in the in the rural South and its sort of place in the history of soul food. Right. So uh, all of us are in in the United States are indebted to the indigenous people here who are raising uh, maize and turning it into all kinds of foods. Mm-hmm. And uh, literally cornbread was the staff of life. In fact, um, because cornbread was so plentiful and could be grown so easily, because uh, remember, uh, European colonists had a really tough time growing wheat mm-hmm. uh, in the early years of colonization. And so cornbread was the staff of life. Uh, yeah. In fact, if you look at some um, narrative of enslaved people, uh, wheat bread had the nickname Johnny Seldom and mm-hmm. cornbread had the nickname Johnny Constant. Uh, so there's all kinds of cornbreads that get developed. So the earliest one was called a pone. And that's mm-hmm. that's an approximation of an indigenous word for kind of a very simple corn cake where it was corn, maybe some salt, and then something that some kind of liquid that bound it together. Um and then uh, it could be cooked in the ashes of a fire and it became ash cake or mm-hmm. it could be cooked on a griddle where it was called um, it was called pone or Johnny cake. You know, there's various names for these things. Right. Or it could be fried and then you're getting to hush puppies. 
Uh, and then as milk and eggs and other ingredients get added, then that becomes the more familiar cornbread that we know today. But um, all kinds of cornbreads were developed in the South and, and um, enslaved people relied heavily on them for sustenance. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the release of your latest book um, earlier this year. Congratulations on that. Uh, this is your third. And for listeners who are not familiar, it's called Black Smoke, African-Americans in the United States of Barbecue. What was one of the most sort of exciting or surprising discoveries that you made while researching and writing this, Adrian? I think um, to really see the depth of the Native American contribution to barbecue, because mm-hmm. uh, the way that barbecue's early history is often told is, yeah, some Europeans show up in the Caribbean, they see indigenous people cooking in a way they really hadn't seen before on this raised platform. There were fish, iguanas, vegetables mm-hmm. being slowly smoked. And then uh, the Europeans took this to the American South, added their own animals and created barbecue. Uh, so, you know, that didn't mesh with me for a lot of reasons. One is the way that barbecue develops in the American South is different than the raised platform technique mm. seen in the Caribbean. So there's something else going on. And, um, I really wanted to see what was the mix of African Americans, Native Americans, and Europeans that really give rise to barbecue. And what I found in, in looking at the travel diaries of, um, white colonists and what they had observed is that. Well, Native Americans were cooking in a certain way, and it's clear that at some point, Europeans altered the way that Native Americans were cooking, and that alteration and thrown in African enslaved African labor mm-hmm. and seasoning methods and, and all of those things, that puts us on the road to Southern barbecue. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was surprising to me. Uh, another was to see the deep legacy of women in Black barbecue. Because uh, barbecue is often presented as dude food, and yeah. it's really presented as white dude food mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, and so I found the story of Mary John, who in the 1840s was what we would call a pit master today. Yeah. Uh, an enslaved woman who was doing barbecue. So imagine that, 1840s, wow. enslaved black woman telling dudes what to do wow. when it came to barbecue. And she ends up buying her freedom after being hired out to do barbecues. So... um those those things were just really uh, rich. And the, the other part, I guess, you know, it's, it seems like a dumb moment now. I had no idea how much African-Americans had dominated barbecue. Mm-hmm. I had known that it was a very important part of African-American food culture and that, you know, black barbecues are. But I, I had a, a, a very multicultural view of bar- barbecue contributions. And to go back and look at these newspapers from the late 1700s and early 1800s, basically saying, hey, you know, barbecue is made by black men, usually an older black man uh, doing this. It just shows the dominance that mm. African-Americans had in the shaping of, of American barbecue culture. And I guess the third thing is um, finding that barbecue was whole animal cooking until the early 20th century. And it was the transition of barbecue from a rural context to an urban context that we started to get these regional barbecue styles developing, focused on smaller cuts of meat. So these mm. things that we argue about intensely today, they're only about like a hundred years old, but we, we act like they're t- from time immemorial. Yeah. I love being reminded that so much of what happens in the barbecue scene today wouldn't be there without the influence of some amazing women. So thank mm-hmm. you for sharing that, that anecdote. Was it, was it really hard to find others like her? 
it was from that time period. Um, when you get to the 20th century, black women are all over the place. And if they're not explicitly named, you've got a lot of black men running barbecue restaurants say, oh, yeah, I got yeah. that sauce recipe from my grandmother mm-hmm. or my mother taught me how to do this or that. So there's, there's and the restaurants named after their mothers. In fact, in my own family, my late mother, uh, Johnette L. Miller, she was the griller in chief in my family. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. So, yeah, for black people, that's that, you know, black women at the grill is not a big, it's so commonplace. It's not even a big deal. Is there anything else that you're working on that our listeners should know about? So I'm always thinking about the next project. So there's there's a few things swimming in my head right now. So one is um, a meal-based guide to difficult conversations. Mm. So how how could you create a series of meals that bring people together? Um, Because there, there are fewer and fewer spaces in our society to really have a chance to talk, to sit down, talk to somebody and hear them out and get another perspective. And I think the table is one of the few places left because I've been doing racial reconciliation work for a couple decades now. And yeah. my experience is you got to be a special kind of cat to sign up for an indefinite dialogue about something. Definitely. And and the real challenge is how do you get that person who doesn't want to talk about the issue, doesn't know anything about the issue, how do you get them into a space where they feel invited, they feel welcome, Mm. And you can really talk some out. Mm. And the people who disagree with him are not jumping all over him. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I think there's there's a great need for all of us to feel comfortable enough and not be afraid of um, stepping out of our little echo chambers. Thank you for listening to My Family Recipe. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to let us know what you think of our amazing guests and their delicious stories. This was, in fact, the last episode of the debut season of the podcast. We have so appreciated your company through this journey. This is also a great time to return to some of the older episodes that you may have missed along the way. Something to keep your hearts and bellies full until we return with another set of amazing guests, their cherished family recipes and delicious stories. Special thanks for this episode to Adrian Miller. You can find a link to Adrian's original essay and Mini Atsi's no-fail cornbread recipe in the show notes. My Family Recipe is produced by Dylan Hoyer and Hannah Forden. Our Julia Child Foundation Fellow is Kelly Spivey. And our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Cora Lee is Food52 Podcast Network's producer. Our theme song is Vittoro by Aeronaut. This show is a collaboration between Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. There is plenty more to read and to listen to. Find even more stories at food52.com and heritageradionetwork.org. Hi. My name is Coral, and I produce Food 52's podcast. Now, Food 52 believes the kitchen is the heart of the home and food is the center of a well-lived life. And if food audio is as much the center of your life as it is mine, here are a couple others from our network that I think you'd like. There's Kristen McGlory's 10-year strong Genius Recipes column turned interview show, The Genius Recipe Tapes. Each week you'll leave with a new recipe or technique that will completely change the way you cook. And Counter Jam, hosted by Peter J. Kim, 
With the help of musicians and food friends like singer-turned-sassier Khalees, podcaster-musician Rishikesh Hirway, and rapper Ruby Ibarra, Peter seeks a deeper understanding of cultures and the identities we construct through the dishes and songs we put on repeat. Or The Sandwich Universe, a show all about, you guessed it, iconic sandwiches. Hosts and longtime BFFs Molly Boz and Declan Bond partake in philosophical debate. I mean, why even is it called grilled cheese when it's not grilled? Take listener questions and dream up delicious versions for you to try at home tonight. You can find Food 52's podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.